This week on our 50th episode of Put Your Socks On, we sat down with Sir Dave Brailsford of Team Ineos to get his take on the sport of cycling and where it's headed. the metaphor of um, you know you go into a challenging scenario and you're going into the sort of it's, it's the evening and you're going into the middle of the night in August dark you know but yeah. you know if you wait for long enough all of a sudden dawn reappears and there's a little ray of light over there somewhere and it gets brighter and brighter and before you know it the sun's out and everybody's having a great time G'day and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On Trumpets Sound Bobby Today marks our 50th episode of the show. It's a half ton, as they'd say in cricket. And uh, as I've been joined on the previous 49 occasions, Bobby, how you doing? Oh boy, 50. God, that sounds old. I think I'm going to be turning 50 <laughs> here in a couple years. Um, but yeah, man, what an amazing uh, accomplishment for us. We just started this a little over a year ago, and right. 50 did sound like a little bit of an imaginable number when we were speaking with Robin Thurston from Pocket Outdoor Media, and he said, yeah, you know, let's just get some content in there, you know, 30, 40 episodes. And I thought he was crazy when he said that, and now we're up here at 50. So Hey, listen, it's been a lot of fun. We've learned a lot. Thanks to you for everything and to Eddie Rogers, who's been there every single episode to make this at all possible. Yeah, man, what a way to celebrate our 50th episode with another incredible guest, Sir Dave Brailsford. You are right, Bobby. Uh, we're a couple of old ducks at this now, and um, and I'm really excited for today's show. Today's guest is one of the stalwarts in cycling a man who's revolutionized the way teams operate, riders train, and the entire sport looks. He's never shied away from controversy, and whether you love him or hate him, Sir Dave Brailsford is a man whose words deserve respect. At a pivotal moment in the sport, we decided to sit down with him to get his thoughts on the impact of the current situation on riders, teams, and races, the proposed 2020 calendar, and the sweeping changes he's called for within the sport and how to implement those as well as the next frontiers in human performance. Today's episode was produced in conjunction with the Outer Lines' Steve Maxwell, who also joined us in what is a wide-ranging and really engaging interview with Sir Dave. Welcome to the show, Mr. Sir Dave Brailsford. Thank you so much for carving out some of your time and your busy schedule to come and talk with us here at Put Your Socks On in conjunction with The Outer Line. First of all, Dave, how are you? How's your family? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you, Bobby. Um, good to see you guys. You know, like everybody else, been stuck at home now for a good few weeks. The longer it goes, the quicker the weeks go by. I don't know how you guys are finding it, but the days are all rolling into one. It's been like, it's like been at a stage age where you're never quite sure what day of the week it is. You just kind of figure out you're kind of somewhere in the middle, somewhere towards the end. But uh, I must say, it's been an interesting period and, um, and a good opportunity to connect, I think. That's, that's what I've seen. Even though I've been alone, if you like, uh, you know, we've been isolated uh, physically, actually made more connections and talked to more people than, than I have for a long, long time. So um, I've enjoyed that. I've taken a lot out of that, actually. A lot of insights, a lot of good sharing and uh, quite a good community spirit, I think, amongst the, uh, the cycling community anyway, that's for sure. And one thing that we kind of wanted to to say right away was, you know, passing our condolences for the for the loss of Nicholas Portal. I know the timing of this whole thing kicked off around that that period. So just wanted to um, 
wish you and the extended family at Ineos our, our deepest condolences for that terrible loss. Okay, Dave, I know that you take planning and protocols very seriously. So I, I'm curious to hear Team Ineos's formal training and activity programs for both the riders and the staff during this period and how you're trying to keep them on task when racing is so uncertain. I mean, let's face it, everybody's rhythm has been broken, both in the training and in the daily life. Keeping them mentally focused in the game in order to maintain those fitness or objective goals has had to have been a struggle, right? Well, you know, I think what we tried to do right at the very start, you know, we were all going into the unknown. We had a, a lot of uncertainty a lot of questions. People didn't really know what was going to happen. And I guess what was interesting was you could see, because we didn't all go into lockdown simultaneously around the world. You know, this thing crept up on some countries, some countries like particularly, you know, from, from China into Italy. Italy was way ahead of us, you know, in terms of their, their getting ahead of their lockdown. And then we slowly, you know, we kind of watched other countries lockdown. And I feel a little bit, we sort of slept walked into lockdown in, in Britain. I don't know about you guys. So in a way, it kind of crept up on us, you know. We, we had, a, like all the teams, really, we had the experience in cycling of the uh, UAE tour, where if you remember, very early on in all of this, there was actually the, the breakout there and everybody got locked down in a hotel and there was a couple of cases and that really brought it home to us. You know, that really made it very, very real, very early in the whole story. And we thought, wow, OK, geez, we're going to have to really think about this and think about what are we going to do? If you recollect, we decided to, along with a few other teams, we decided quite early to pull out of, uh, of, of Paranese and Torino, which are big races. You know, we won those races quite a lot. And of course, the ambition and the you want to go back and and have another go, you know, and you think, well, it's a big call not to go and carry on. But we didn't feel comfortable. We didn't think it was the right thing to do. And, um, you know, uh, interestingly, Tim Kerrison, who, who you know really well, Bobby, you know, Tim had flown into uh, UAE about two days before the first case was was uh, identified. And Tim's, a, you know, a, a very good thinker, a very clear thinker. And uh, from a science perspective, he really went to town very early and had a look at the, the potential you know, what was to come. He was very strong in his advice that, hey, guys, this is going to get a lot bigger than we all expect. We need to get everybody home. We need to make sure everybody's safe with the family. And then we just got to bide our time and make sure we're set up. We decided that rather than have this sort of psychological, undefined period of uncertainty, we thought, actually, could we frame it in any way ourselves? So we went for a model, which was kind of a three-phase model, we called it. And so the first phase was all about the transition into lockdown. So what we decided to do is we'd give everybody the time, you know, because we would all sort of go in and think, what's going to happen here? Let's jump on a turbo. Let's get swift in. Let's get, you know, train a road in. Let's, let's, let's go, you know. And, and actually, psychologically, we felt everybody needed like a week. So we gave it a week, week and a half, of just letting everybody bed in and get used to their use, the normal kind of surroundings. And then... You know, by after, after a week or so, it was starting to become, um, you know, fairly, uh, we were adjusted to it, if you like, to being at home. Um, so we had this transition in where we tried to communicate a lot. We tried to think about the, um, the, the sort of uh, the psychological components of what, what would happen when all the riders' goals go out the window, when, you know, they've all been training for something and no longer training for something. And 
what happens to people who are thinking about the where they're at in their careers and all sorts of different um, scenarios. So we did the transition, and then once we transitioned in and we felt we got comfortable, then we said, okay, guys, now we've got to, we've got to increase our productivity. And very importantly, we've got to think about creating value um, because we're in a business where the majority of the value that we create is done through the hit of racing. You know, it's, it's the racing mm-hmm. that gives us value. That's why people invest in this sport. And if you take that away, all of a sudden you're not left with a lot, you know, and you've got to think, right, well, okay, well, how does this work? You know, and what are we going to do to create value during this period? And we're going to have to rethink what we do here very quickly, um, but let's not go too quickly. So we didn't want a knee-jerk reaction, but we wanted to start thinking about it and get set up and ready. So we had phase one, which is transition into lockdown. Phase two, which is lockdown which we're still in, quite frankly. You know, we've still got another... I'm not sure what it's like over over with you guys, but in Europe, it looks like, you know, mid-May, early May is going to be the timescale where, you know, most guys are going to be allowed out to start training again in, in, on the open road, maybe in ones, maybe in twos, but certainly not in big groups. Um, but there's going to be this transition then into the next phase which could be up to, you know, the transition back into racing, which will be potentially eight to 10 weeks uh, before August. Um, and so I think just by creating that, those three phases and for all of us to go as a collective, so we know where we're at, we know what phase we're in, we know what we're trying to achieve, and let's work with what we've got now, and then we'll go into the next phase and work with that, go to the next phase, work with that. Uh, it kind of gave everybody a bit of a roadmap and some orientation as best as we could in an uncertain situation. So obviously you have a lot of people in your organization. So I had heard some teams getting together and doing like Zoom call activation exercises or yoga or stretching. Did you guys do any of those things? Or are you guys so spread out all over the world that that wasn't really manageable? Well, I think what was interesting was... Um, you know, all riders are different, as 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 you guys know. You know, and 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 some of the riders now, when we think about the riders, some just jumped on the, you know, jumped on the, on the Swift, jumped in the gym, jumped on the turf, and they just off they went. They can train, you know, really, really. I mean, big volume on a, on a trainer, you know. And some guys, you know, they're they're there for racing. They 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 only train a little bit because they want to race. And and those guys, I think, all of a sudden had, had a bigger switch to make into that to that home environment. So what what was key to us, I think, was obviously the guys need to continue to train, but equally the communication side and how are we going to, you know, what what can we do to connect one another and connect to one another? So fundamentally you've got training and then you've got the supporting of the training by the physios, the carers, the doctors, the coaches, nutrition, you know, all of those, all the ologists that we have nowadays, you know, you can still connect and you can still support the training, albeit indoor training. And so we did quite a lot of, um, you know, communication work groups. And, and as you know, we work via the coaches. We're a coach-led organization. So the coaches have each, each group of, of athletes. And then the so support services work in via the coaches to the riders. And they manage that um, very well. So they had small subgroups working together, jumping on Zoom. We, we, we jumped onto Zoom pretty quick, I think. You know, I think we, we're used to doing conference calls. I think most of the pro teams are. You know, you're used to this sort of geographically remote kind of way of working. So that was, you know, I think we were pretty skilled in that already. It wasn't anything too big a deal in terms of change for us. But you're right, we started then connecting, identifying what's important to support the athletes in this moment and how do we keep on doing that. 
in the here and now and have this sense of connectivity. And and you touched on it a little bit, the programs that you've created to maintain, create and grow the fan engagement, I guess. Like, yes, you already mentioned that a lot of your guys jumped on Zwift. Uh, we saw the Ruby platform race last weekend. Rowan Dennis is just a monster at those races. Evidently, I think I think you got a I think you got a, a star in the in the making there in, in e racing. That's for sure. But what what I really like to see also was the the social awareness and the fundraising for charitable causes that a bunch of your guys, most notably Garrett, jumped on. Are you doing even more than that that maybe we've missed or just hasn't been reported on? I think the topic of value creation is a really interesting one. You know, as a, as a sports franchise, that's what you want to try and do in the end. And normally it's through races, through creating emotions and inspiring and, you know, mm. people get involved. In this time, it requires a real rethink and probably more of an engagement. You know, it's like a mental engagement. It's like, guys, we've got to make the effort here to really think about this scenario that we're in and what can we do? We're not going to get, you know, one big hit of we can win a race or win a big race, etc. This is more like it's the opposite of death by a thousand cuts, if you like. It's life by a thousand cuts. So we're not going to get one or two big things, but we can do thousands of little things. And if we do that... You get a sense of momentum, you know, and you get to see the team. You notice that we'll be in the media. We can use a guy's social footprints. We can use their reach to talk about either what they're doing or other things or the current situation. And I think if you open your mind up and think about how, come on, guys, let's engage ourselves as professionals to try and look after our, our, the, our, our, the people who invest in us, then all of a sudden you get some great ideas. And, of course, Ideas have got value. They haven't got rank. You know, my my ideas aren't any better than anybody else's just because I sit at, at the top of the pile. You know, it's the value of an idea that you want to get. And you don't know, in a, in a team like ours, that the greatest idea can come from the most hidden little corner. And if you're not listening to that, you're going to miss out. So we tried to generate quite a lot of discussion in terms of, guys, what can we do? And the other thing we did, um, which was a, which quite, was quite an interesting one, really, was uh, I spoke to... Uh, Sir Jim Radcliffe, who's the owner and chairman of, uh, of Ineos, and said, look, Jim, you know, we're here as a team now. We've got a lot of resource. Uh, we recognise we're not racing, but it's not a holiday. You know, the guys are still training. They're training hard. And we as an organisation have still got capacity and resource. What can we do to help? And um, a couple of days later, he came back and he said, right, I've got a, <laughs> I've got a project. We, we make all the raw material for hand sanitizer, And um, he tasked his team with creating a hand sanitizer production line within 10 days from scratch and start producing hand sanitizer bottles. And he wanted to produce a million a month and supply that to the frontline workers in hospitals um, and on the frontline, the health workers, basically. And he did that in the UK. He did it in France. Well, two, two places, two sites in France and in Germany. And he said, you guys can do, um, you, you know how to do logistics and, and distribution and all that kind of stuff. You guys can run all of this kind of uh, supply and getting all the hand sanitizer to the right hospitals and get it all out there to the frontline workers, which we, which we sort of grasp with both hands because it might not be anything to do directly with cycling, but it is creating value. And we're working and we're pushing, you know, putting our shoulders behind something, which is a project for our owners and of the bigger corporation and we went for that. It's been a massively, I mean, fantastic from the, the, the team behind, the logistics team, everybody's been involved, and they've done a brilliant job. 
and it's quite a satisfying thing to be involved in as well, you know, given the, the, the situation we're in. But, you know, in Belgium, we used our team vans, we chewed team vehicles, Servas Carnarvon did a piece on telly so that hospitals became aware that they could get it free of charge. So use the sport of cycling to promote this hand sanitizer for free into hospitals project. And lo and behold, off you go, you know, and it's, um, it's been a great thing to be involved in. And in fact, we're starting up now in, um, in, in the States, we've got a project over in the States where they've started uh, the same to do the same thing. And I think the first deliveries have gone into Little Rock mm. up in yep. uh, Arkansas, I think it is, isn't it? In, uh, okay. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's starting on Wednesday. Wow. That's, that's fantastic. So, so you guys are a massive team, very, very popular around the world. But the things that you've just mentioned, are you getting anywhere near that same engagement or exposure that you would during like the normal racing season? And if so, like, how are you even able to track this? I know that you guys like numbers and analytics and data. How, how would you track if you are getting that same sort of fan, you know, outreach to the fans, contact with the fans? Well, obviously, some of the goal, if you like, of um, of this sort of, you know, how to create value, you want to get the Ineos name out there in the in the public eye, and that can be through traditional media, it can be through news outlets, it can be it can be little stories on the news, you know, the local local news, national news, it can be through social uh, media and all of our social media platforms. Of course, that's relatively straightforward to track um, and get your data back in and um, and and manage. And we've got a terrific little team who. Who manage that for us and make sure that they're, you know, it's um, it, it, it's it's sort of led by, you know, we 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 support engagement, but equally we think quite carefully about where we direct our engagement. We know what people want. We know what our fan base base likes. We know what they want to hear. We want what they we know what they want to get engaged with. There's type of, of um, and stories or the type of information they like to see. We're pretty, you know, we we uh, we get insights on that. We try to work on those insights to try and promote, and for us to give people what they want from their um, from their sports heroes or the franchise, really. Um, so it's uh, it's never it's never totally accurate science, but it's certainly you know it's um, there's I think like anything else, you know, you can have data, you can collect the data, and um, the data can give you that level of understanding, but it's the understanding that then leads to knowledge. And, and you don't just get data for data's sake, you know. And I think that's sometimes people say, you guys collect so much data. You say, yeah, we do. But you've got to translate it into, you've got to understand what that data is telling you, whether it's the right data. And then you take that understanding and somehow try and translate that into knowledge upon which you can act. And you can use that knowledge for something to do something based on the data. That's evidence-based. It's not just collecting the data. And, um, you know, we've got more data than you could ever, ever wish to have, I guess. But uh, <laughs> it's the knowledge, translating into knowledge is the key. And I think that's where some of the guys are, are, are pretty cute in the way that they operate, you know. Dave, let's, uh, let's turn the attention over now towards sort of the, you know, the rest of the 2020 season, if and when it occurs. And I guess we're, we'd be curious to get your take on sort of the current version of the UCI calendar. I mean, I think... Obviously, uh, the, the UCI is in a very tough spot here in terms of trying to mm. keep the sport on its economic legs, but also, you know, comply with public health guidelines and protect the health of the peloton and so forth. And, and I'm sure that the schedule will be evolving and changing as we go. But be curious in your take on the current version, you know, how you're going to try to get your guys ready for this. And are we trying to compress too much into short a time? And, 
just just give us your sense of the, yeah. the current version of the calendar plan. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a great point, uh, Steve. And I think the um, you know what we got to think about. Well, I guess as a basic principle, we're going into something that's not going to be the same as what we've had before. And I think working on the basis of okay, let's have a look at what this is and and thinking from um, you know what can we do with the scenario we face rather than trying to replicate or go back to what we had before quickly as that's what we're trying to achieve. I don't think that, that necessarily works in this, in this kind of scenario. It's a different scenario. Let's accept it's different and how do we make the most out of the scenario we face with the compromises and the, you know, the challenges that we're going to have to tackle. The idea of just going back to where we were, getting back to normal, I don't think that really flies. I think it's probably a, a bit erroneous to think about it in that way. It's what's the best scenario that we can create given the constraints that we, we're now facing. And like you rightly say, I think there's a there's a, 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 an opposite, if you like, the tension between the, on the one hand, protecting everybody and health, on the other hand, racing and crowds and the economy and, and all the rest of it. You know, there's a natural challenge there where we're going to have to use two dials, one dials up, the other one dials down, and, and vice versa. We're going to have to find the right settings to make the whole thing work out if we're going to be successful. I'm very pleased that they, uh, they've announced the calendar, I must admit, because I think it does give us at least a working model. Um, and I think that's important. And, and whether that changes or whether it stays the same or whatever, you, I think you do need to have some kind of assumption or working model to work on. And we recognise that there's going to be, you know, for the bigger races or any races, really, we don't want to have big... The, the chances of bringing big collection, you know, collective crowds and big gatherings is, is going to be limited, isn't it? I'm, I'm, I'm mm. sure of that. So we're going to have to think slightly differently, maybe about how the starts of races work, how the end of races work, and you know how the whole how we move around and how we how we move between hotels and and you know the eating and dining and sharing and all those kind of things. We're going to have to think through and, and, and think through carefully. However, having said all that. You know, I think it's um, it's like anything else. I think, you know, you go into these situations and I, I kind of like the metaphor of, um, you know, you go into a challenging scenario and you're going into the sort of it's, it's the evening and you're going into the middle of the night and it all gets dark, you know. But, you know, if you wait for long enough, all of a sudden dawn reappears and there's a little ray of light over there somewhere and it gets bright and brighter and before you know it, the sun's out and everybody's having a great time. And I think that's how I, I've talked to our guys about, you know, hey, guys, listen, might feel challenging at the minute, but the dawn's coming up. The race program, there is a race program. It can work if, we, if we're careful about it. And let's be ambitious. Let's, let's be optimistic. Think positively about what's going to happen. Don't allow the situation around you to drag you down in any way or dampen your enthusiasm and, you know, bring you down. See it as the sun's coming out and go and run towards the sun and be positive about it. And so... In that sense, I think I think it's uh, it, it's great to have the the calendar. Of course, it's a new calendar. So when we sit down now and start to think about the planning of the who's going to ride what race, what's the strategy, what's, you know, what's our performance strategy for the year, then we have to rethink that a little bit because sure. you know having the tour come in front of the Giro um, and then and then the welter it, it's a, that's quite a significant change <laughs> how we considered the season over the last you know x number of years you know and we quite often think well you know a rider can ride the giro maybe come out of the giro and, and ride a supporting role in the tour so if somebody gets that opportunity in the giro they come out they can ride a supporting role in the tour they ride the tour 
and may not ride a welter, or you can double up Giro and welter. But this time around, it looks like, you know, going into the tour, it's not going to be possible to back up into the, it looks very difficult, probably impossible to back up into the, um, to the Giro because just they're so close together. So there's an option of, you know, tour and welter. I think that's probably doable, but really there's not an option of tour and Giro. Unlike other seasons with the tour coming first as the first grand tour, the strategy uh, and how we're thinking about strategy changes quite significantly. Um, and of course, we've got, uh, you know, four very capable uh, leaders in the team, you know, great, great riders. And we're just, you know, thinking and considering now, do you put everybody in the tour? Do you split your resources slightly? Do you go, you know, you spread your, spread your, um, spread your ambition slightly? Uh, how would that work? You know, what do they feel? It's important to understand what their ambitions are and how they feel about it, put that into the mix. So we're right in the guts of that right now, actually. And, uh, you know, we've had quite a few conference calls and Zooms and everything else. And, and, and we're in the process of um, unpicking all of that and, and putting our strategy in place. I can imagine that must be quite a challenge, and it's probably one that changes on a daily basis. One thing, Dave, that you've commented on um, bluntly in the last couple of weeks is the is the sense that, you know, if you felt that the circumstances were not safe that you would pull your team out of some of these potential races do you foresee a situation where there could be different you know different opinions or controversy within the peloton where you know you or other teams might decide to keep your team at at home for health reasons and other folks that are maybe a little bit more desperate for economic survival might decide to go ahead to race and we could end up with sort of a confusing you know confusing situation from a racing yeah, you know, yeah, yeah it's, it's a really good point. And I, I think the um I think we saw maybe a little microcosm of that in uh, sort of the Paranese uh, mm-hmm. right. Two or three teams pulled out, and then halfway through, a couple of teams pulled out. You know, mid-race they they pulled out, and then of course some of them carried on. And you do wonder what you know what the pressures were, and you know, every team's under different pressures, and you have to respect that, and you have to respect the decision making. But, um, you know, it would be an awful shame that I, I know the economy is important and I know money is important and mm. teams and all that, but nothing's more important than somebody's health. And, and I think we do carry the burden of being the, you know, a lot, of, a lot of what's happened at the minute, when it happens, it's quite an emotional reaction. You know, it, it's hard not to feel quite a lot of emotion about situations at a minute. You know, our responsibility is sort of the the leadership level is to put that emotion to one side, recognize its emotion and calmly think through what our responsibilities are to the people in the in the team, to their families and to people around and make sure that we, you know, are clear in our thinking and take responsible decisions. Of course, the desire to compete and get everybody back and economy and keeping people in jobs and everything else is is a big kind of counterweight to that but i think it needs it, it needs um so personally what i do is i have a best case a mid case and a worst case and i work those scenarios through and so when it comes to actually whatever's going to happen you know i'll say okay we're going to use the worst case model or we're going to use the best case scenario or we're going to use the mid case scenario but i'm not making that up when i get there and right. i thought through you know it's just a question of opening the right drawer and taking what's in the drawer out and saying, right, this is what we were thinking when we were clear-minded and we had time to really think about this. We thought this is probably the best course of action. And we kind of use that as a base and maybe tweak it slightly, but that's yeah. that's the approach I'll, I'll take anyway. And, and if I thought it was dangerous, uh, yeah, I, would, um, I wouldn't put people in danger. 
Has, has there been any discussion between or amongst the teams um, to try to encourage everybody to sort of act collectively or? I think, I think the dialogue between teams have been one of great support. I think it reflects what we've seen in society, really, where people really have tried to, you know, a lot of the a lot of the stuff that we, you know, get frustrated about and, and find reason to argue about is all out the window, isn't it? The minute it's like, come on, guys, let's get real. And uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, a much more um, cooperative, um, collaborative kind of way of thinking, the sharing of ideas. You know, we're all going to go out and start training outside soon and, what's best practice, you know, and, and, and very simple things like mask, no mask, gloves, no gloves, you know, two riders, three riders, all very kind of simple but quite important practical considerations that we can all share amongst each other. So I think the, the general sense at the minute is one of, um, of unity, actually, and of the sports trying to look out for each other. That's great. That's great to hear. The, uh, you know, there's also been a lot of discussion about how how do we look at this time this this kind of era in in the sport to help us think through or help maybe force changes that have been needed for many years or sort of the attitude of how do we how do we um, utilize this period to move the sport forward and to implement changes that maybe uh, that maybe should have been implemented in the past and I guess we'd be interested to hear you talk a little bit about you know how can we use this challenging time to improve the sport to improve maybe the the nature of our funding mechanisms in the sport or to change the calendar in a way that's positive for the sport and sort of how do you see how do you see us coming out the other side of this you already alluded to you know it's not going to be the same old normal again it's going to be something new and mm. how do you see this period being utilized to maybe affect some of the changes that the sport really does need yeah again i think i think um so I sat down and, and, and thought about this, at, um, you know, trying to really unpick what are we experiencing? And, and there's a couple of things. I think there's, there's one question, which is how do we transition from the situation that we're currently in back into what we recognise as a racing programme, a more, you know, a, a recognised racing programme? And what are the steps to achieving that? And I think that's a problem in itself, and that's a, a, a question to be answered in itself. On the other hand, you've got a question which may be, what were the uh, limitations of the previous structure and model that may have been exposed during this period uh, more than we thought maybe they ever would be? And I think the third thing for me is a different question is, we... You know, if we went back two months or to, you know, when we were racing in um, in Spain in some of the early season races, and I don't know, even as, uh, even as late as Het uh, uh, Newsblad kind of time, really, you know, nobody, like nobody would have imagined that we would ever be in this scenario. And it just goes to show that incredible change can happen beyond what any of us would give credit to be, to, to be able to achieve, you know, so... You know, there's, there's nobody walking around New York. It just it's like something out of a movie, isn't it? You know, it's like, it's, that's just incredible for that to be happening. Same in London, same around the world. And yet it is happening. And I think one of the things to take from that is, you know, change, big change can happen. It really can. And, and, and in many respects, it's a demonstration of that, that we may, may get so stuck in our in a rut of thinking, oh well, we can't change anything. You know, we, can't, we, we might be able to tweak this or tweak that. When actually, we forget that radical change 
is possible and we're experiencing that right now like way more radical than any of us could have ever thought to be honest and i take quite a lot of um strength from that to uh, you know and, and and i think i try to take quite a lot of energy from that just as a reminder that hey, nothing's nothing's out of the question you know nothing should be just you know ruled out because it feels like the magnitude of change would be too great of course then the consideration is well what would those structural changes look like which could potentially put us and the sport on a on a, a surer footing in the future and financially on a surer footing in the future and you know, I think one of the, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not, I'm not sure I've got a, a silver bullet here, unfortunately, um, but there are certainly some lessons to be learned. And uh, I think the what, what we've seen in terms of how the world's still connected, you know, we're connecting here with, through technology and the world stayed connected through technology. People are racing in their garages around the world on a turbo and yet people are watching it as a bike race, you know, as an an e-race. And, Yes, there are limitations in terms of the important right weight and power, but who cares? I mean, the concept is we're connecting. And yep. I think there's something valuable in that for, for us as a sport that we haven't quite coordinated into a single package. And it feels that there's too many disparate parties at the minute and there's too many people looking after their own area first and the kind of sport second and each other second. And whilst you have that, I don't think you're ever going to get an optimal solution. You know, you'll get a collaboration maybe when it suits people, but it's never going to be optimal. And I think what we're looking for is that how do we take the sport from being really great? I mean, it's a brilliant sport. It's a very resilient sport. You know, this sport's been through a lot. It's a massively resilient sport and one that people love. So we started from a pretty good point. I'm not so negative. I think we're in a really good place in that sense. But then how do you get that, how do you get that next step? Where's that next step coming from? And I think that needs, a, that needs a greater deal of coordination. Somehow, you know, we talk about the various kind of the UCI, the ASO, the teams, the riders, the usual, you know, everybody can see where the groups are, it's pretty evident. But we don't have a central, uh, a real strong, centrally coordinated strategy that everybody can contribute into and everybody can get something back out of. And, um, and I think therein lies the challenge, I think. And until we get to that point, it's key to see how we're ever going to be able to optimise. So we'll, we'll survive, we'll keep on going, but we won't optimise. And I think that will be the, that's the question for me in terms of, you know, what could we do? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people with a lot of different opinions out there. And, you know, we've spoke about that this already on the podcast, and it's kind of just like, you know, flipping a coin. It doesn't really matter much what, what we say. But you made a comment interesting enough on BBC last week about trying to change cycling's business model and in particular the need to decrease the sport's reliance on what basically is the the Tour de France, the, the biggest event that we have on our calendar, which, you know, Team Sky and now Team Ineos has focused on and been hugely successful at. That being said, how do we take a little bit more and maybe build up some more more of these races, you know, moving forward. I guess what I'm more interested in specifically is about any innovative models that would you would be able to build upon or maybe even replace what we have currently for the benefit of the sport for years to come. Because what you just said, we've all said for decades now, but bringing those people together you know, and, and making some real progress, some real changes, growing the pie, distributing the wealth, 
all this stuff. Are the powers that be in cycling capable of fixing this on their own? Or do we need maybe somebody from without outside the sport to come in and guide this project? Because for me, this is the opportunity of a lifetime here. We've been talking about how do we get all these parties together? How do we stop fighting and squabbling and the jealousy and the competition? This is it. This is our chance. We got one shot at this. So what can we do a little bit more specifically to motivate all these different fractions to come together and come out of this for generations to come in a much better place? Well, I think there's, um, there's nothing like the force of having to try and survive to create a will for change. You know, if, if, if the desire for change um, is upward, but the resistance to change is downward and the resistance to change outweighs the desire for change, you go nowhere. And for years and years, there's been a desire, there's an element of desire to change, and let's let's try and move things, but the resistance to it's been too great. You know, that's the that's the truth of the matter. You know, there's the, the, the structures and the way that the sport's organised. The you know, as you guys have, have, have talked about, you know, for for a long time, I'm sure. But but maybe uh, you know, I, there's there's no doubt about it when you just look at the facts and the figures, and you look at the viewing figures and the audience and the the economic impact and, and the sponsorship return on the tour compared to the other um, to the other races it's nine day you know it really is so the, the, the facts are there the evidence is there and, and it stacks it up but rather than think we have to diminish the importance of the tour and, and to increase the um, the standing of the other races you know for me I think you, you try and grow the tour even bigger and grow the other races so instead of trying to say down with one and up with the others, which seems to be the, what I what I hear, and and you know ASO and we'll go. Mm, don't want to decrease this, so these can come up. It's no, all get bigger. You know, I've yeah. been I've been in a situation for years now where years and years, in fact, you know, for us maybe, and even with British cycling for twenty odd years, I've been told, oh, it's only because you get money. You know, you got too much money, that's why you win. You know, you got you always get too much funding, you got too much money. You get you can hire all these riders X, Y, and Z. And, and let me tell you, it's not why we've won everything. It's, it's helped, but it's not the single reason. And my argument, and, and certainly when, when Sky pulled out, and uh, you know, a lot of people said, okay, well, here's the challenge for you. You know, you've got to, you, your sponsors pulling out, what are you going to do now? You know, and they think, well, I'll go and find a bigger one. And, and people, you know, didn't, didn't, didn't like that attitude, you know, and, and I think, you know, it's something I... I accept really because I think I do think that's how that's how I think and and, and people, for some people it just that doesn't sit very happily with them they don't like it you know and, and um, but, but my point was actually we've got a terrific team this crazy successful team if we can't go out and sell this and and, and find a new opportunity and find a new uh, funding partner bigger and better than what we've got then there's something not quite right so if you set out with ambition then. You know, we, we you, you've got a chance of finding it if you if you set out with the ambition of well, that's a shame. You know, sky's gone. I'm going to have to go like you know back down now. We're going to have to go with a 20 million, 30 million sponsor because that's all a team can get. If that's the ambition, you go and sell, then that's what you're going to get. And so, and, and like, like I've said to you know a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, the with the salary caps and you know, Team India's got too money, Team Sky got too money. It's not that we've got too much money; it's that the others need to get more. You know, why don't you go and get more rather than taking telling us to have less? Is that what we really want? If you think about that, it's like a reduction kind of model. You know, let's make the small sport smaller and let's reduce the investment in a sport so we make it more para, you know, get more parity. No, let's grow the sport, guys. Let's grow the cake. You know, instead of instead of trying to pinch each other's slice, let's grow the cake. 
and it can be done. You know, there's a lot of investment out there. I found out, you know, last year, there's a lot of money, a lot of investment out there who wants to get involved and back this sport and be part of this sport. We just have to tailor the product and the um, and the mentality behind it all to go out there and, uh, and grow it. I think ultimately, look, you know, when you compare ourselves and the structure of this sport and how it's run to the, to the other leading sports in the world and you go and do a, a competitive analysis with other sports, say, like, what's the right. management structure? What's the franchise model? What's the management structure? How do they work? What do they do? And I think ultimately the time's got to come where you take that kind of structure and we say, you know, if that's if that's competitive, that's what we're competing as we've got to do that ourselves somehow within our sport. And I'm not sure that having the um, you know the governing body of a sport uh, running the commercial kind of side of a you know a world a professional sport, uh, whilst it's there to govern and it's got a lot of uh, of course it's got a role, but it's not and it shouldn't you know world championships maybe, but ultimately what it shouldn't be doing I don't think is running a professional league. And I think what we should have is a is a think very carefully, come together and say, look, it's not it's not at the expense of everybody. It should be uh, you know the opportunity to grow the sport by creating a structure which is going to allow everybody to move forward collectively and be a bit more fit for purpose. Really, so I would personally, I would um, I would look at creating a new structure um, of which there may be various stakeholders, but you had a governing uh, a governing structure above it which was a commercial and, you know, the franchise management and had a real interest of growing the whole sport at the time. You know, one of the things, I talked to a lot of, a lot of my friends and colleagues over in, in America, one of the things I love, I go to one of their franchises and somebody's just done a, you know, a, a, I don't know, a, a fan engagement campaign and they don't hold it, they don't they go, okay, well, that's great for us, we'll just, we'll tell nobody else, we'll just keep that to ourselves. I'm quite happy phone up the competitor, the fiercest competitor, and go, hey, we've just done this fun engagement thing over there. It's worked fantastically well. You guys should have a go with it. You know, you should you guys could try it out. And and when I first saw that and came across that, I was flabbergasted. You know, it's going to be so alien to the way you think, wow, actually, you know, that at a certain level, if you've got a centralized model, you can all collectively recognize you've got to sell the brand, you've got to sell the sport. And on the ground, on the pitch, on the road, we can compete as fiercely as we want. But above, you've got to have really good managers and, you know, guys who are the commercial guys who can run these structures and run these sports at the level of, uh, of those sports that we're competing against. So, you know, like your, all the franchise structures and the league structures you've got in America, some of the, the best sports professionals in the world are, are operating in those structures. I mean, they're phenomenal. And what we need, I'd say, is potentially to take that model of best practice but not, and not copy and paste the franchise, but take the knowledge and take the working practice and say, guys, we could structure this in a much more coherent way. You still have stakeholders, you could have, still have shareholders, still have the same people involved, but with a single strategy and somebody's the custodian of that strategy. Yeah, no, and, and, and appreciate you um, going back and answering that. Is this, um, is this, is what you've just said still theoretical at this stage or are there, you know, teams and and is this conversation being had and steps being taken towards this at the moment within the sport or is this still just an idea no i, I think at a minute you know the um i think the reality is that there's a the teams get together the organizer get together the uci gets together but it's a collective single strategy sitting above everybody that everybody can collaborate and buy into and see how they can play their part and, and get something back out of it and grow everything no um, are we close to that? No, no, I wouldn't say so. And um, could we be close to it? 
look, nobody thought you'd see nobody walking down New York Fifth Avenue two months ago, and that's what's happening today. So of course it's possible, you know, and anything's possible. Um, we just need to to find a way, and maybe this is a, a good opportunity again to um, to reconsider and, and and think carefully. And you know, it's quite interesting. Some of the people, you know, some of the the, the teams that are getting involved, and and um, to be fair, some of the some of the team managers. Uh, there's some really really good team managers and some really good teams out there being run in a in, in a terrific way, you know, and um, and credit to them. And I think there is the capacity and there is the desire there. I don't think we. As I say, no, I don't think it's it, it's not a massive step away if um, if we were all to get behind it, you know. And moving now, um, as as I was before, to to more sort of sporting subjects, the sport's growing, and and the women's side of the sport is growing. Is there a plan for for you guys to have a, a women's team in the near future, or in 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 the you know the sort of distant future? Yeah, well. Um, Right here, right now, no. But that's not to say that we don't recognise the importance of it and we don't undervalue it. And, and it's certainly an area where, you know, it's very much in our thinking because it is an important area. And, and um, you know, I, it, you can't help but feel that for every time you're going to close a road and, and create a race and put a race on, uh, regardless of, forget gender for a minute, and you've got two groups... Yep. Uh, can you put two groups of people on the course and manage that logistically and operationally and all the rest of it? Uh, it seems to be like, yes, you could, you know. <laughs> Particularly, yeah. it might be the odd course, that's an outlier, that would make it really difficult. But in the main, if you're going to go to the trouble closing roads, putting the logistics, everything else, could you have two different races in tandem? Yeah, yes, you could, I'm sure you could, you know. For, for a little kind of, you know, not, it's not you're not going to double the effort. And... Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there really should be a point where around the World Tour races and the series of races that we have there, that they, um, it, it should be both. It should be, you know, men and women uh, racing on the same course. And we have seen more of it, you know. The, the mm. Terrific. I, I actually really enjoy it. So when, we, when we've been, you know, the various races where there's a, a, a women's race before the men's and, and quite often they put it on before and it finishes before, some of the finishes... That we were, obviously I was there, and, and some yeah. of the finishes to those races were absolutely nail biting, brilliant racing. Mm-hmm. And so I think you know you can't help but add to the to the sport. So yeah, I'm I'm um, very mindful of that, I must say, and um, an area where we um, we need to really focus on and, and think about carefully. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that. Um, we spoke with Michele Aquarini, the former. Um, boss at the Giro and he said a very similar thing he said it's not that difficult to run two races together and um and and that's that's the next the, he thinks that that's one of the biggest steps that the sport needs to take and these bigger races need to take if if as you said the whole thing's to grow um you're in a very unique role you mentioned this earlier at the beginning of the conversation about having you know four four bike riders capable of winning of of, of winning grand tours and you know you have a very stacked squad um you, you, how do you manage that? Like, you seem to get everyone to work together quite well, um, and and the team seems to, at least outwardly, like you know, function highly effectively with these with these big names. Can you tell us a little bit about your philosophy of managing these egos and and and, and how you approach that? Yeah, it, it's um, you know, sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong. I don't think there's anybody. Nobody's got a magic wand. You know, dealing with people. 
and we're all human, you know. We're all got our, you know, positives, and 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 you know, we can all we can all do things we regret, can't we? So I think you've got to take that into consideration. But I think if you start from a premise of, um, you know, you're dealing with individual athletes who who, who have reached the pinnacle of um, of their performance, and they're within a team, um, and they understand the sport. You know, you've got to you got to accept that they're not they're not dumb in this sport. They understand sport. They understand how the sport works, and they understand that you know if you're in a team environment, somebody somebody's you know there are sacrifices to be made along the way. And I think if you take the names out and you think of just the roles, and you work with the guys and go right, guys, you know, in in the following scenarios, what should happen? And they all know. Everybody knows how how it, how it works, and everybody knows what should be done. And who should do what, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think there's a couple of key ingredients. You've got to know the individuals and, and, and what motivates them. And, and whatever you want, whatever I would like them to feel, you've got to respect what they do feel. And it's a mistake to try and um, put your own kind of interpretation. This, what you, this is what you should be feeling, or this is what I think you're feeling without taking the time to try and properly understand how are they seeing the world, what are they seeing, and their interpretation of, of different decisions or discussions or choices um, may be very, very different uh, than, than what you intended them to hear. And you've got to check that all the time. You've got to try and be consistent um, so you understand what, what's intrinsically driving people and, and you've got to try and be consistent and, 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 and the word trust, I think, comes into, mm-hmm. into this a lot. So there's a couple of, of, of things that come into the situation there. One is, of course, the at the very start, selection. And um, how do you select a team? Who selects a team? When do you select it? What criteria are you going to use to select your team? And then if you're going to nominate somebody as a leader or a co-leader or two leaders or three leaders, whatever you're going to do, what basis are you going to do that on? And what criteria are you going to do that on? And people can understand that. And I think it's when when right. when riders aren't clear about who's selected, when it's selected, what are you selecting on? Why why him? Why why is he he's here and, and I'm here? Why is that? What's going on? You know, and if people don't understand that, then any human being will start to agitate. Right. And once you start to agitate, then you start to misinterpret because you you you'll 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 pick things up emotionally, and you'll be you'll be you know processing things emotionally, which might not always be accurate. And you might be tripping yourself up, or you might quite not be reading it right. So you've got to respect the fact that you know you've got to you've got to try and be very honest and clear with everybody, and recognise that if I say to you guys now, hey guys, listen, from the three of you, I'm going to select the team, and what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to stick, I'm going to take a picture of you now, I'm going to stick it on the wall, I'm going to get a dart, I'm going to blindfold myself, I'm just going to throw the dart, and whoever's picture the dart lands on is going to be the leader. Now, you're not going to be happy with that, right? You're not going to be happy with that. But what you will know, you will know the process, the time, and the method upon which I'm going to select a leader. Now, you might not be happy with that, but once you know that, then I put the blindfold on, you'll be going, God, I hope it's me. You know, I hope he throws that dart well, because I hope it hits me. It is great, and if it isn't, okay, unlucky. But at least... I mean, it's just, I'm just illustrating the point. Yeah, yeah. But it, it brings it back that if people understand what are you doing, why are you doing, then there's the, if they understand the process, they might not always, uh, you know, agree with the interpretation or, you know, that you, you, but, but they understand the process. 
And I think if we do that and you're quite clear with that and, and um, quite honest with people in terms of where they stand in a pecking order, then, then you can go a long way. And of course, as a race develops, you know, that's pre-race. And when you go into a race, um, you know, that's where obviously you start to really get a feel for form and, and the differences between the top guys aren't, as you guys know, it's only a small amount, you know, it's not a big difference. And when you start to see that, and when you see enough of it to think, actually, yeah, we could make a decision on this rider is actually going a little bit better than this rider. Now, if they if they feel that somebody else is genuinely stronger than them, they no rider has an issue with a stronger guy being the leader. Mm. The issue comes when you think, actually, hold on a minute, I'm as strong or even stronger than the other guy, and this isn't this isn't you know I'm I'm this isn't working out. And that's, that's difficult. That's a difficult thing to do. And again, um, I think going through the races that we've had in the past, you know, sometimes we've got that right. Sometimes we haven't quite got it right. And it's caused some friction and sometimes, you know, get it totally wrong and cause a lot of friction. Um, and sometimes, you know, the guys, there's, there's no way that the guys don't know what the kind of etiquette of racing is. They all understand it. And sometimes they just, you know, go with it. Sometimes they, you know, you can think, hmm, okay, did, what, what, was this a, was it move A or was it move B? And we'll all have a bit of an in, interpretation of that. But in the main, I think where um, where we've been strong is that the riders are, are quite happy to communicate what they think um, and how they're feeling and how they're seeing it. And I think we always try to be very um, uh, responsible and responsive and really respect their opinion as well. And then have a dialogue. You know, if we've, got to, if we've got to make a decision, then guys, we've got to make a decision. Let's not not make a decision because it's too tough. And then end up in a worse situation. No, we'll make a decision. Um, and, um, and overall, I think there's, uh, you know, you know in, in the end, there's a lot. Of, you're asking people at times to self-sacrifice. And if I'm going to sacrifice my opportunity for you, then I need to have a, you know, I'm quite happy to self-sacrifice as long as I know it stacks up on the other hand and it's like a bit of a balance, you know, as long as that thing, if that equation works and I get it, I'm quite happy to do it, you know. But if it doesn't work and I feel, oh, I'm, I'm not sure this is the right way to do it, then you've got a, you've got a challenge and you need to address that straight away. And of course, in, a, in, a, in various teams, you've got various people in various different situations, times of their career, you know, maybe uh, doing a, a double or there's a, 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 a grantor they can lead now and then they'll help somebody else in another one. Or, you know, there's a younger rider and a, an older rider and you might be able to figure out, okay, actually there's something in, you can learn from this. You know, a bit like Egan did in the first year in the tour. Right. With, when, he, when he rode with Geraint and Chris and he was terrific. You know, the, the work he did in the mountains was unbelievable in terms of supporting those two guys. But he sacrificed his own, you know, his very first tour, but he learned a lot, you know. So for him, he was quite happy to sacrifice because he knew he was gaining a lot of learning for his future self. And that works. That's quite a powerful concept, your future self. And so all of these things you can tend to map out. And, and if you work at it hard enough, you can, um, you can try to find the right way where the right person is backed. And they all, all understand as well, I think, one of the key things is if you all commit – and this lady says three, three really strong riders. If you all commit and race properly, 
you're increasing the chances of one of you three winning dramatically. You're dramatically improving the chances of one of you winning. And it may be you, but it may not. So you can all decrease your chances individually if you want by not working together. Yeah. Or you can all terrifically increase it collectively by working together and one of you might win. And that might be you. And which one do you want? Because they both don't work. You know, and there's clearly a better way of doing it than the other. And getting them to think and commit to that is something that I think um, is important. And, and the guys recognise, you know, they're experienced some of our guys. You know, they've been through a lot. You know, Chris and Geraint yeah. have been, in particular, have been through a lot of different scenarios and situations. And they're very astute and uh, pretty self-aware in terms of how they um, how they operate. And so... Like just speaking on 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 getting the most out of out of your athletes and and you know obviously like Team Sky and then now Team Ineos right have always been viewed as that performance above above all else right like win at all costs and you know marginal gains etc you know you've heard it all um I'm I'm really interested to hear to hear your take on what the role of sport should play in society um like and and, and what its purpose is and then. Is there a point at which like a controversy or when the pursuit becomes too much and you have to change that course? Well, I think, um, you know, I've been working in, I've been doing this kind of role now for over 20 years, really, and to do with the Olympic mm. program to start with. And then, um, you know, obviously with this, with this uh, current group for quite a long time. And uh, what you do realise at certain points as you, and you, know, mature, you mature yourself, don't you? you know, but you realise that there's an awful lot going to a very few. You know, there's a lot of lot of resource, a lot of potential, you know, wealth and money, and there's a lot that can go to a very few people, which is the way our society is stacked up, and that's how it, how it is. But you get to a point where you think, actually, somehow, that needs to circle back into society in general, and there needs to be a benefit somewhere in the broader society and a broader benefit for that to really stack up. And, and I think you become a bit more aware of that. You know, maybe maybe it's an age thing. I don't know, but uh, certainly that's been um, that's been an important factor in my mind. And you know, I'm driven. I'm, I've, got, I've got nobody. You know, I think the people who'd say to me, "What?" You know, there might be a psychologist who's specialist psychology and various other specialists who have specialist subjects. People say, "Well, what, what am I a specialist?" And I'm not really a specialist in anything, but I've got a big desire to win. I'd say that probably, you know, I, I, I want to win and push hard to win. And at times I think that can be seen as quite um, maybe a bit, a bit of a negative trait in terms of, you know, the ruthlessness of it all. But believe me that, um, you know, I have seen this, uh, the, the scenario where, you know, you need to inspire people. You know, we, we, we're not going to give people wealth, but you can inspire and enrich their lives. You can create, create people and, and give them opportunity you know, the mass participation rides that we've seen grow in the last 10 years is humongous, you know. Mm. And did we as a sport play a part in developing that? It's not this team, but generally in, in the sport, more people riding bikes now than ever before, you know. And, and all of those kind of elements of, 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 of programs or initiatives or uh, things that we can do to, to reflect back in society are very, very important, I think, very important. Mate, thank you. I've got one more question for you, um, and this pertains to. I've heard you mention um, the human brain and the human psyche is the next frontier in sport. And you know, we've seen athletes like Rowan Dennis, Kipchoge, who have, you know, worked in these areas and then and then used them to incredible effect. 
looking towards the future, like what area are you most excited about when it comes to human performance? I must, I must admit, I had a fantastic experience with, um, you know, when I first came into Ineos and we got asked to support the uh, the 159 project, you know, yep. the Ipchogi project, and can can we break two hours? And, and we got involved in that, and they said, okay, well, how would you approach it? And so there was two things, really. One was, you know, from a performance perspective, you think, okay, well, let's go for what, what what's slowing somebody down, you know, in a marathon. So let's go for, and look at the course, let's look at the you know, the altitude, the environment, the temperature, humidity, how many corners, what radius of corner, you know, how do you change, how do you feel, all the, you know, all the, the sort of technical and performance elements. But then you need an athlete who believes it can be done. And um, right. and I got to know, I didn't really know Kipchoge, but then you get to know him. And his, his, um, his thing is all about no human is limited. Yeah. And, you know, if you can take the handbrake off on your mind, then, you know, you can achieve things that people didn't think were possible. And I buy that, I must say, and, and having worked yeah. with him. And, um, you know, I, I really do think that the, uh, the we're still in the process of, un, you know, unlocking our minds mm-hmm. um, to allow, you know, us to achieve uh, physical uh, performances. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not changing physically. We're not, you know, the, from an evolution point of view, it's not as if we're changing rapidly. But we are managing to actually, with the, with what we got, get faster, and what we got, get more out of it, and, and how we think, and how we approach things, and how we believe in 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 the the concept of level and ambition of ambition. What is possible is changing. You know, I'm I'm, I'm it's quite exciting watching. Um, I mean, there's nobody better than in, in our sport. What what Chris did in his career and has done in his career and the way he approached things sometimes was uh, was a great example and. Yeah. No, no, you know, none better than the uh, stage nineteen of the um, of the Giro. You know, when he was <laughs> three or whatever he was minutes down, and he crashed. You know, had a big crash, a big, big crash on that first day before the before the time trial, before the prologue. He really hurt himself. And for most mm. people, I think at that point they'd have gone right. I'm really, you know, you you guys have had crashes. You know, it's like to race after after crashing, and you think, oh, okay. This is going to be a tough, a tough ask, and and every day he'd watch people disappear off, right. you know, the climbs. So Twenty guys you could normally climb with, you know, all of them, and they were taking a minute or they're taking thirty seconds, and he was struggling his way through, and and yet he'd come back to the bus and he'd go, you know, oh, through me okay, and he was like, yeah, I'll tell you what, it's tough today, but I'm having them tomorrow, you know, <laughs> it's like, you're like wow, okay, and he's he's this kind of. This, this belief and the mental strength of the guy and to go and do what he did on that on that stage and, and, and win the race in a manner that he did was just phenomenal. And yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that kind of, if you believe something could be done, then you're increasing the chances of it being done, you know, a million times than, than, you know, than if you don't. And some people believe and they make these incredible things happen. Okay, Dave, I wasn't going to say this, but because uh, you know I'm pretty biased towards... Uh me. I, I really feel that, you know, when this accident happened and then seeing the calendar the way it was, I would speak frequently with my training buddies, Christian Vandevelde and, and George Hincapi, and it always came up, can Chris come back? And my honest answer was, I don't think he'll be ready before the tour. And now that's totally changed. 
right? Like that time frame has slid forward. So if there's anybody in the Peloton that's benefiting from this two month slide forward delay, it's it's Chris. And now when we talk about it, I say, well, if the Tour de France does go off, everybody better look out because Chris has had this extra time to prepare. And I think his rehabilitation has gone incredibly well. And to build upon what you just said about his mentality, we we knew that that was never going to be in question, but would his body respond was the big question. So, so yeah, how is Chris? How How is everything that we see on social media, on Strava, um, is, is that... Is he happy? Are you happy with the progression? And, you know, does he have a chance to, to win his fifth Tour de France this year? Well, I, I think look, the, um, the, the rate of progression and his recovery has been, um, has been phenomenal. You know, he's he managed himself incredibly well. And, I, you know, you, the, 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 it's just, a, you know, the logic of the situation, putting everybody's big race back a couple of months, um, has given him an extra period to to catch up and bring his bring his condition back up to the level required, and um, and he can he he knows that you know, and he can train hard anyway. But you give him that little glimmer of hope and that little opportunity, and boy, what you know, he can yeah. what he can absorb and what he can do, and and I, I think what what's impressive about him is his, um, and you'll know this yourself, it's his, his in his training, he's so consistent. The volume of work that he, you know, the day in, day out, day in, day out. And in the end, it's that consistency that really separates the good from the great, I think. And he's so consistent in his training and, and what he's done in particular since, you know, this period has been um, has been amazing. It really has. And he's, he's, again, it's down to his mental strength, I think. And, um, you know, if anybody can come back and do it, then then he can, that's for sure. Dave, and one last thing I can't let you off the podcast without asking you is when we were trying to set this up, you accepted, which I was very honored that you did. But then you asked me a question. If I knew anyone in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I have to, I, I have to say that that was a shock. I thought, wait, is it April Fool's? Is this some sort of joke? Or is this some sort of, you know, code? You know, why is he asking me about Little Rock, Arkansas? Because let me just tell you, there's not much in the sporting world that goes on in Little Rock, Arkansas. So I need to know that cryptic text that you sent me on, on WhatsApp. What was that about? Yeah, so, uh, you know, as, as, as part of the um, INEOS hand san- sanitizer project, you know, it's getting replicated in in, um, in America. And um, one of the first deliveries, uh, free of charge, obviously, you know, this is a hand sanitizer to get to the health workers, to support the health workers. And one of the very first deliveries is going into Little Rock, actually, to hospital in Little Rock, uh, Arkansas. And um, it just made me think, God, aren't you guys would maybe, uh, you know, from the, within the sporting world and the sporting community, you know, what connections are there out there where um, we could just make sure that, uh, you know, the hospitals in the local community are aware that that, that opportunity is happening and we connect into it and just time to help out, you know, and, and reach out um, and support where we can. Well, like I said, I'm sorry to let you down, but I don't know anyone in the sporting world in Little Rock, Arkansas. But is that just the first stop and there's going to be many more to go? Is there somewhere we... Is somewhere we could check on on your website, or somewhere that we could actually see 
where where this is going to be available? Yeah, no, I'll definitely get back to you guys because I think the, it's, yeah. it's the start, it's the very start. It's just that initial delivery, get things moving, and then we're going to grow the whole operation across the uh, the hospital sector um, from state to state. So the uh, we just want people to be aware of it so they can make the most out of it and, and, and take up the opportunity. And, uh, you know, like I say, more and more than anything, be aware that that, that opportunity exists so they can tap into it and, and get the support right. of frontline health workers who, uh, who need it the most. And that's it. Number 50 in the books. That's all we have time for this week. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And thanks again to Sir Dave Brailsford and Steve Maxwell for carving out some time for us today. You can also get the show as well as some other fantastic cycling journalism at velonews.com. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever your favorite go-to podcast site may be. Just search for Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O. Please continue to show your support by subscribing to this program, and please spread the word by telling your friends about us. You can get at us on social media, Fizopod, P-Y-S-O-P-O-D, on Twitter, at that is Gus or at Bobby Julik uh, for the two of us on Instagram. Feel free to reach out, give us suggestions, feedback, uh, whatever you feel like. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Until next week, take care. Thank you, everyone, for all your support over these first 50 episodes. Hopefully, we'll have 50 more. And as always, don't forget to put your socks on. <laughs>